This is Rod Lansing with True North Political Solutions, and I am the Government Affairs Strategist with the Pharmacy Podcast. Hi, this is Ed McGee, owner of Family Pharmacy in Enfield, New Hampshire, and President and Executive Director of the New Hampshire Independent Pharmacy Association, calling on the Pharmacy Podcast. Hello, Pharmacy Podcast followers. This is Ron Lanton, Government Affairs Strategist for the Pharmacy Podcast. And today I have as my guest here is Ed McGee of Family Pharmacy and President of NHIPA. Hi, Ed. Hi, Ron. Always good to hear from you. Yeah, great. Good. I'm glad to uh, have you on the show. How are you doing today? Thank you. Uh, pretty well, thanks. Other than uh, pharmacy issues, I'm great. Yeah, well, that's exactly what we want to talk to you about <clears throat> today, or pharmacy issues. So uh, we know that you're a pharmacist. Uh, for our listeners that aren't uh, aware of who you are and uh, your your organization, can you explain a little bit about your background and what you think your individual mission for pharmacy is? Uh, sure. I, I bought my first pharmacy in uh, 1970, uh, independent pharmacy, of course, and I'm still involved in independent pharmacy. And in, and in 2001, we were uh, put under the gun by, by Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Hampshire in terms of reducing our reimbursements. And about six of us got together and we said, you know, what can we do? How can we, how can we make pharmacy, independent pharmacy in New Hampshire prosper? And we decided that the only way to really get around this was to form a buying group. That that's kind of what independent pharmacies were looking for back, you know, 10, 11 years ago, a way to, to buy at a better bottom line. So we did. We started a, a buying group, and uh, we've been extremely successful with that. And we've also branched out into uh, legislative affairs here in New Hampshire and try to lend our voice to what's going on nationally also. Well, that's exactly um, some of the issues that we want to talk about in this interview because government is such a important part of pharmacy now. It used to be where, as a small business person, uh, you can kind of sit on the sidelines and ignore government, but not today because <clears throat> it's become so much more of an active player in the marketplace. So with that, um, I'd like to open up this uh, conversation a little bit more and ask you, you know, what do you see that are some of the biggest problems for independent pharmacies in New England and nationwide? I'm not really sure if um, if it's New Hampshire, if it's New England, or if New England pharmacies have different issues than uh, <clears throat> someone in California. Uh, you know, what do you think about that? Well, I think we're all facing the same issues. As I stated earlier, we were extremely successful in <clears throat> making a buying group that, that worked for us in New Hampshire and, and Vermont. We expanded into Vermont also. And we, we have one of the best buying contracts in the country. And guess what? That really doesn't do you that much good because what the PBMs do to us on, on the sell side from them to us is make us a very unprofitable group, a very unprofitable profession. And I think that what we need to do is get – a strong national association to take on the, the government because it takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of intelligent people uh, throwing their hats into the arena. Mm -hmm. And for the listeners that aren't aware, PBM stands for? Pharmacy Benefit Managers. <laughs> and uh, could you tell the, the listeners a little bit about who they are and how they might be impacting the business of pharmacy? Well, sure. They're basically... 
uh, a company or a group of companies uh, nationwide that uh, in the beginning there was PCS. So I think uh, those of us who are old remember the pharmaceutical card systems, and it was just a way to be able to adjudicate claims and get paid in a, in a proper manner because things were getting to be more complicated. But the PBMs have expanded their role and continue to expand their role year after year after year to where now they're doing formularies, now they're doing closed and open formularies, and they're doing whatever they can to drive profits their way, not necessarily in the best interest of the consumer. So they be, they've become a huge behemoth um, of pharmacy care and health care in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I hear a lot of complaints about uh, their activities within Medicare Part D, um, which brings me to my next question about preferred pharmacy networks. Oh, I thought uh, you'd you never ask. ask? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that's an issue that's near and dear to you. Um, could you tell our listeners a little bit about preferred pharmacy networks, what they are, and um, do you think that they're actually the future? I certainly hope they're not the future, but and I don't can't I can't say I have my hands entirely around the concept, but uh, basically they've gone after the big chains and um, people like Walmart, if you want to call that people, and and they have basically uh, insinuated themselves into the relationship whereby they they can drive the terms of the contract. And the thing that's really offensive to me is the fact that CMS, the Center for Medicare Services, has bought into this whole idea that if it costs the consumer less, it must be a good deal for the United States. And by the way, uh, Catherine Sebelius, I believe is her name, um, has, has violated CMS rules by taking this approach because their rules say that they, they have to treat everybody equally. But she is said um, very forcefully that if it's a better deal for the consumer, then CMS is willing to violate its own rules. And what she doesn't understand is what's better for the consumers may not be what's best for the United States taxpayers. Well, I know that a lot of pharmacists nationwide do want to have a talk with uh, CMS because I know that they're uh, have been some in, or there has been information put out there in the past about uh, CMS taking a look at preferred pharmacy networks and actually whether or not they are uh, a good thing for the supply chain. So um, that's very interesting that you say that. Well, uh, moving on, looking at the independent pharmacy profession, uh, for the independent pharmacists that are sitting at home and starting to get their arms around this type of issue, um, and I know more and more independents are getting involved. Um, what would you suggest to an independent pharmacist as far as getting active and, and trying to change things in his or her state? Well, I guess in today's independent pharmacy arena, I would tell them the first thing to do is to join PUTT, P-U-T-T, Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency. I've been involved in NCPA and ACPCN, and um, always the ball seems to get dropped. <clears throat> excuse me, dropped when you get close to, well, not even the goal line, when you cross uh, midfield. So uh, Putt has some interesting ideas in the hopper, um, and they actually are working with NCPA at this point in time, which I think is a really good thing. But they probably stand the, the best chance of helping us uh, gain some ground against the PBMs. 
you and I talked offline about state organizations, and you know there may be a, a pharmacy association in uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Obviously, um, what you're doing with uh, NHIPA, uh, the Ohio Pharmacists Association, for example. Um, do you have any advice for pharmacists that uh, really don't have maybe a central organization point in their state, how they might be able to organize themselves? Uh, gosh, Ron, I hate to use the term grassroots, you know. I mean, it's so yeah. overused today, but the, the truth is that um, the, the only way we're going to achieve any success against the PBM industry is a groundswell of support from individual states leading up to a national association that has some power. Um, it's unfortunate that we have to do it that way, but, you know, the independent pharmacy associations across the country, state by state, are very small in numbers. I, I put out a message on the PDS message board to say, um, uh, Bailey Melton in Mississippi helped me get this idea going. And we said, you know, how many, how many independent associations are there out there? And we only got a response from about five that said they were actually active in um, promoting independent pharmacy and willing to take on the PBMs and the insurance industry. So that's, that's not a good sign. Um, so we, we have, I, think, I think we have to start from there and expand the number of um, independent associations state by state. Yeah, you're right. And I think that that really um, is doable with an open communication. Um, I don't know if it's a, a chain of uh, maybe emails or uh, like some kind of distribution list or, or something like that. Is, do you have any suggestions for maybe how that might be accomplished? Well, I, I think communication is the key. That's, that's the, the proper word right there. Uh, I think every state has to establish that communication and trust amongst the uh, independent pharmacy owners within their state. And then, then we can take it to POT, we can take it to NCPA, ACPCN, wherever um, the majority feels like is the best place to go. But we really have, we really have to get organized. And I'm, there, there's a word out there that I really hate to bring up in this conversation, but it's called apathy. Yes. And I'm seeing that even here in New Hampshire, where we're, we're a very close, tight-knit group of pharmacy owners. And yet I find that they're – I don't know if it's because pharmacy owners, for the most part, are getting to that age where they're thinking about selling their pharmacy, maybe retiring. They've had enough. They've been pushed around. They, they seem to have lost that incentive to, to go out there and fight for their stores and for their patients, really. We, we all know, as independents, we all know, without a doubt, that we take better care of our, our patients than chains or mail order can possibly do. We're on a first-name basis. Uh, they live up and down the street from us, and we really care about uh, their lives. A mail order doesn't give a hoot about anything other than profit. Well, let's talk about New Hampshire for a little bit. Uh, I know that the state is discussing Medicaid expansion, whether they should do it. Uh, I do know that uh, in the New England area, at least, uh, right now, New Hampshire and Maine are the only states that do not have uh, a form of Medicaid expansion right now. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that if we did open up new, uh, expansion for Medicaid in New Hampshire, that this will actually help the independent pharmacists? No, not here in New Hampshire. Absolutely not, Ron. This this will be oh. no. This will be horrible for us. Uh, for the last maybe 30 years that I've been monitoring this and been able to get information on this, New Hampshire is the lowest reimbursed state by Medicaid 
in the country. So the more people that we put on the Medicaid rolls, even though they deservedly need to be there, um, the, the, what we get reimbursed for filling Medicaid prescriptions in New Hampshire is heinous. And I just looked the other day, for, for instance, for last month, and our gross margin on New Hampshire Medicaid, and this is in real dollars, you know, we know exactly where we are by net dollars, was uh, 6.5%. Wow. And we can't we can't stay in business with that. So, as much as we, as human beings, would like to see Medicaid recipients in New Hampshire get a better deal, to open it up to more people, for us it's it's uh, a death knell, really. And I was talking. We went to a meeting the other night that was put on by Cardinal about how to sell your pharmacy, for instance, and. I was uh, talking to some of the bigwigs in there, and they said, gee, we're, you know, there's new stores opening in Maine, there's new stores opening in Massachusetts, but none in New Hampshire. Why is that? And I said, very simple. Our uh, Medicaid reimbursement in New Hampshire is the lowest in the country, and when people figure that out, they think this is probably not a good meadow to raise their violets, you know. Yeah. Well... Um, in order to change something like that, is that something that a pharmacist may want to approach uh, a representative about or a senator? Oh, I, I don't think we'd gain any ground that way. I really, I really don't. Uh, we, we've tried. Uh, we have instances, and again, I've seen this across the country, where um, we're required to dispense brand names when there's an FDA-approved generic available. And... We know that New Hampshire Medicaid will not give us the information that we've asked uh, uh, about specifically for Adderall and its generics. Um, all they can say is, well, you know, our rebates are so high that it makes it profitable for us. When in reality, if you go look at the Medicaid law, they can't, the disparity between the brand and the generic in terms of rebate is not broad enough that they're saving the state money. They're just going in and saying to the executive council, look, you know, here are the rebates we've earned. We're just doing a great job. And um, so we've, we've gotten nowhere with, with uh, approaching Medicaid on, on being open and honest. So in your opinion, what, what should a pharmacist do? Should they, should they try the regulatory route, or what's there left to do if, if uh, the legislature is not an option? Well, I, I think for Medicaid in, here in New Hampshire, it's a moot point. I would, I would certainly turn my energies elsewhere. Um, I think a, a broad-based communication network of pharmacies, independent pharmacies in every state would be what we need to have. Um, our third-party networks, no matter what, who your third-party network is, whether you're buying from one of the big three wholesalers or a, a smaller independent, they're totally ineffective. And they, and they really don't care. And there's enough of them out there that they've spread the number of pharmacies around so that none, none are effective. And over the last 15 or so years, they've given, given away terms and conditions, if not monetary issues of prescriptions all the way around. They don't understand the terms in the contract and they don't communicate well with us. So I know that Pot is going to, um, uh, send out an RFP to PSAOs to see what is the best deal we can get. The problem is, in order to do that, we have to have numbers. And if we don't have 
at least five or 7,000 independent owners on board to go looking for a contract like this, we won't get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And numbers is important. Numbers is important, Ron. And how do do we reach out and get um, independent pharmacy owners to to pay attention to this? I really don't know. Uh, This is something we've been working on for two or three years now and haven't really made a lot of progress. Yeah, the key is to just keep talking, because if you don't, then you know what that means. Mm -hmm. So, well, I know that we're getting towards the end of the interview here, and I know that uh, compounding is probably an issue that we're going to have to talk about later. Um, If you do come back on the show, which we hope that you do, uh, I do want to get your thought on one thing. We did have a conversation a little while um, ago about controlled substances and how the uh, FDA recommendation for hydrocodone is being uh, rescheduled from the Schedule 3 to the Schedule 2. And a lot of people are wondering what good that's really going to do for the FDA and the DEA trying to solve the underlying problem of, uh, you know, illegal drugs on the street. Um, You had an idea that I think uh, other pharmacists may be interested to hear about that. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? I can, and this is a huge problem, even here in New England. And I'd like to just tell people how how it works. I was in a cribbage tournament, um, and, and my opponent was uh, from the Vermont State Police, and he was one of uh, three policemen over there that are in charge of controlled substance uh, investigations. And he told me, he said, where the influx of opiates coming into the New England area actually come from Florida, because Florida has... Uh, a 90-day law down there where you can dispense up to a 90-day supply of Schedule II narcotics. And in Broward County, in a, in a two-square-block area, there are 71 pain clinics in, in, two, in two city blocks. And um, people fly down from New England to Florida with suitcases full of cash, they hit a number of these different prescribing physicians, and then they go to the pharmacy Florida's, the pharmacies in Florida, and pay cash for them, put them in a suitcase, put them on a bus, send the drugs back to New England, and they fly back. Personally, they fly back. They don't even travel with their drugs. And then they sell them up here. So I'm assuming that's going on all over the country. And when I looked at the federal law the other day, I didn't realize this, but... Um, the federal law for Schedule II substances is there is no limitation on the number of units or tablets, capsules, et cetera, that can be prescribed on a prescription. No limit. I bet, I bet you a lot of people don't know that. No, they don't. And also, uh, I was surprised, there's no time limit. So if a physician writes a prescription for a Schedule II item today, that prescription can be filled five years from now according to federal law, or 10 years from now. Now, most states have more stringent laws these days, but it's kind of a, a little bit here, a little bit there, uh, non-conforming. So I don't see where putting hydrocodone and Tylenol uh, acetaminophen products into Schedule Two is going to do anything more than create a hassle for us. And I've suggested a Schedule 3A, where people can still get their hydrocodone, acetaminophen prescriptions, telephoned in, faxed in, or electronically submitted for a one-month supply only with no refills. Um, That way, the actual real pain patient 
is it doesn't have to run back and forth to the doctor uh, to get his uh, pain medication. It can be taken care of. And yet, if that law were to apply to Florida and other states that allow huge dispensing quantities, it would limit the number of opiates that are available on the marketplace for diversion. That is definitely a different way of looking at that and, and something uh, that could be food for thought to our listeners out there. Well, you know, as a pharmacist, you always begin to see um, people escalating their dosages on, on opiates. We see it all the time. There's a big pain clinic up here. We don't see anybody being weaned off or taken down on their pain meds, but always increasing, always increasing. So it's 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 a scary thing for the patient too to know that they the only way they can uh, avoid pain in their life is to continue take continue to take more opiates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely an issue that's out there with uh, patients that have these conditions that you know need to access these types of drugs. It's just you know the the age old question, chicken or the egg. You know how do we put it out there to help these patients but also stop crime? So. Right. Very interesting. So, so the, I think the actual pain patient shouldn't be um, hindered by putting uh, those Schedule Three products moving in, into Schedule Two because I don't think it's going to accomplish what the uh, DEA thinks it will. Well, that's definitely another conversation that I'd like to go more in depth on uh, for another show. Uh, thank you so much, Ed. Uh, I know uh, the, the listeners may be wondering how to get in contact with you. Oh, they, they can feel free to contact me by email or telephone. Uh, it's My email address is edmcgee, E-D-M-C-G-E-E-R-X, at gmail.com, or they can call me at 603-523-7478, which is my home number, and I'll be happy to talk to anybody. And anyone who's interested in doing a buying group like we did, which which helped us with the bottom line, but... That's only temporary as the PBMs whittle away the profits on that. Uh, but it's been successful for, uh, for us. Or if someone wants to know how to get an independent association started in their own state, I'd be glad to talk to them. Well, thank you very much, Ed. That was Ed McGee of Family, Family Pharmacy and president of NHIPA. And this is Ron Lanson, government affairs strategist for the podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. If you would like more information on this interview or health policy, please visit us on our website at truenorthps, like paulsam.com, or you can follow us on LinkedIn by searching for True North Political Solutions. Thank you so much again, Ed, and uh, to all our listeners out there, have a great day.